Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello. This week, Tom Holland interviews Sam Wells about his latest book, Humbler Faith, Bigger God, Finding a Story to Live By. Their conversation was recorded as an online book launch this week. You can watch the full event, including Q&A, on YouTube. In a review of the book published in the Church Times, John Saxby writes, While recent books have made a cogent case for Christianity today, Wells here succeeds in making that case in the light of, rather than in spite of, its cultural despisers. His approach is original, accessible and compelling. Humbler Faith, Bigger God is published by Canterbury Press and is available from the Church Times bookshop for £14.99. Sam Wells is the vicar of St Martin in the Fields in central London and the author of more than 30 books. Tom Holland is an historian, author and broadcaster. His books include Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, published by Little Brown, which Sam talks about at the start of the podcast. Tom also co-hosts the hugely popular podcast The Rest is History. Thanks, Christine, and and hello, everybody, and, and thanks so much again to Tom for doing this. I, I, I just loved the attitude of Tom's book. There was a curiosity, there was a, a mood of critical inquiry, but attentive uh, inquiry, and there was a guess-what-I-found spirit to the whole book uh, that, that really, uh, you know, came down from the attic and, and told the household You've never know, you know, you've no idea what's up there. And and actually, of course, as the book unfolds, you realise that, that, that Christianity is laced through all of it. And so Tom, you know, Tom's not claiming to be a Christian. He's not certainly out to well, he's out to persuade because he's he makes an argument all the way through. But it's um it's a it's a delicious argument, which is I think is it's um, best summarized as uh well, a, a little bit like um, a, a, a friend of mine who was a colleague in, in the States who was a rabbi said, you know, if if Christians realized what Judaism really is, and it isn't a stunted half religion that stopped 2000 years ago, and they really re- realized the riches of all that Judaism actually has been in the last 2000 years, they'd kneel down and weep. And and I think Tom's book is sort of, is sort of saying if people realized just how almost all the things we're passionate about today are rooted in in Christian heritage, they would be so open-mouthed, they wouldn't be able to stop a goldfish sort of floating into their larynx. And it's funny, and and, and the funniest thing, I think the the most satisfying moment in the whole book is when he gets towards the end and he says, uh, you know, actually the culture wars, almost nobody in the culture wars in America today realises that both sides are found it's an intra-christian argument and both sides are kind of caricature positions of uh, of historic christian positions and and that's just so satisfying well sam thank you very much for promoting my book on on an occasion that's meant to be promoting i'm very grateful to you it's very kind but we are here not to talk about my book we are here to talk about your book uh, humbler faith bigger god finding a story to live by and Essentially, the conceit of this book is that you have um, 10 chapters and in each chapter you are foregrounding reasons that people have for not being Christian 
or, or actually even often in, in many cases not believing in God at all or having any religious faith whatsoever what gave you the idea of structuring the book in that way because it's quite I mean it's quite unusual like a thought for a, a person of faith to say okay well I'm going to I'm going to look through the prism of doubt and skepticism well it's based around the notion of story and and so I'm, I'm basically structuring each chapter around three stories so there's the old old story and what's wrong with it is is where i start and uh, part of what i'm trying to do is renew christian faith for christians not not just to commend it to those who either once were or never have been or couldn't care less so it starts with the idea that that historic christian faith you know i give an account in each chapter of what the sort of deposit of faith, to use an old-fashioned phrase, you know, what the faith has, for most of the last 2,000 years has been understood to be, but I try and characterise that as a story. And then I try to win the trust of the reader and also discharge some of my own frustrations by saying there's actually quite a lot wrong with this story, that this doesn't do full justice to what Christianity really can and should be. And so in that sense, I hope I've articulated within the first section which is less than a third of each chapter, but within the first of the three sections, that we we do have a problem here, even those of us who, like myself, are fully paid up members. But then I want to turn to what I call the rival story. Um, so obviously, in the case of the chapter about economic oppression, Marx plays a big part in the rival story, Darwin and so on, when you get to sort of science and evolution and things like that. Uh, so the the rival story, and I do my best to articulate it as sympathetically as I can, because I want to treat the rival story as a gift to uh, Christianity and not as a threat. This is a, a quest for wisdom, not a battle to see who shouts the loudest. I mean, you know, this I'm fascinated by the, the Wagatha Christie case at the moment uh, between Rebecca Vardy and uh, Colleen Rooney, I think, Mrs. Rooney, if one can use that expression these days. Frankly, nobody comes out of that mudslinging terribly well. And I don't want this to be a mudslinging exercise. This is a, a quest for wisdom. And I want to, to point out, once I've really listened to the rival story, to say there is some real validity to this. You know, it lands some punches that really stick and leave bruises on the historic Christian tradition. But there are also some flaws in that rival story. Um, you know, I vividly remember when Richard Dawkins was on Desert Island Discs and Sue Lawley asked him, do you love your wife? And how, how do you explain what your love for your wife is within your theory? And he couldn't answer the question. It was really embarrassing. And so, you know, that's an example of how the rival story can be very good at criticising the old, old story, but not necessarily articulate when it's trying to, uh, to, to make a constructive account. So having done that, all of that takes up about half of each chapter. And then the last part is called A Story to Live By. So there's something kind of, uh, it's not a lament, but there's, there's something understated about that phrase, A Story to Live By. There's a kind of sadness about it in a sense that it, the whole triumphant, we're the only show in town, you know, everyone's got to be a Christian, the, ho the whole, you know, where, where things were in about the 12th century, shall we say, you know, that's gone. Uh, and I want to say, and we should be glad it's gone. We should never have had it in the first place. But that doesn't, because that's gone, that doesn't, it doesn't mean the rival story is the only show in town now. 
let's let's look back and let's go back to the roots of Christianity and articulate what the old old story should have been all along and and be grateful that if it wasn't for the rival story we wouldn't have been in a position better to articulate uh the, the story to live by so so that's the structure of each chapter and I I, I, I talk a lot about that in the introduction because I want that to be really the main contribution of the book, that it, it models a generous receptivity for criticism rather than the boxing match. So, Sam, you talk about the rival story. Uh, there are all kinds of rival stories to Christianity. Um, the Jewish story, uh, the Muslim story, Muslim story perhaps particularly. But I, by the rival story, your mention of Richard Dawkins points to the fact that actually what you're talking about is what we might call liberal, secular, agnostic, perhaps atheistic trends and currents that have been so dominant, uh, particularly over the past, what, two, three, four decades. Would that be right? Yes, I think that is right. Uh, I, th I think the rival story is fundamentally that religion in general and Christianity in particular is a wish fulfillment exercise in the face of mortality and you should just grow up and deal with the fact you're going to die and it's over I, what i'm saying is come on bring it on you need a bit more story than that uh, and actually actually you've got a point so it's a combination of that i'm trying to draw out that story because i take the default position of the nation and you know the North Atlantic, whatever whatever one perceives the audience for the book to be, um, the West, I suppose, to, to be one that has, uh, what, what I'm trying to remember, Bethelheim's phrase, I'm sure you'll remember it, that has disenchanted the world, where the idea of story is perceived as childish and atavistic. You know, it's it's really a thing that we left behind after the Enlightenment and after the Industrial Revolution. Um, and certainly after the great figures of Freud and Marx and Darwin and Nietzsche and people like that. Um, and that now we're, we're quite comfortable living in a kind of secularity that has no sense of the transcendent and that thinks that we should simply in, in, enjoy what we've got and get as much as we can and put off death for as much as we can. But, but I'm, without being hostile to that, I'm trying to irritate it, nudge around it, point out its absurdities and inadequacies and say, come on, I think we can all do a bit better than that. However, what it's criticising in Christianity is often worthy of criticism. So I read a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. Tim Keller is a, a leading Presbyterian Church uh, of America pastor in New York with a congregation of how many, however many thousand. And, and I really didn't like his book. For, for two reasons. One, because every anecdote was a young couple who'd come to see him and asked a stupid question and he'd given an extraordinarily erudite answer. Um, that was annoying. But also because when, when he was faced with the really unacceptable parts of our Christian heritage, because he couldn't steamroll them, he just had to leave them out of the book. There's almost nothing in that book about sexuality there's nothing in the book about the ghastlinesses of the Crusades and so on. He just left, leaves it out of the book he, because all he had was secular critique and Christianity. So I, th I thought, no, I, I think I've got to try and do a bit better than that. 
and create a Christianity sort of before the conversation and then a Christianity after the conversation. But but, what, but you're absolutely right that I am assuming a kind of secular materialism as being my main conversation partner. And, and on what, what basis do, do you think that the perspective of, a Christ, say, a liberal Protestant Christian in the 21st century is superior to the the perspectives of the past so you you, you talk about the you know the the story of christianity that has to be revised or improved upon do you, i mean do you think that christians in the 21st century have arrived at a state that is superior to the positions that christians in in, in past centuries were were at i i think there are some significant wrong moves and there is there is a a major move in the book the reviews of the kind people who said nice things about it so far haven't really highlighted this major move that's in the book but i i i do believe that that all things were created so that god could be with us in christ in other words i believe that if there hadn't been a fall or whatever you understand that um to be that Christ would have come anyway. He didn't come as the plumber to fix the pipe. And I do think that is a minority voice in Christianity. Karl Barth takes that view, I would argue, but, you know, Thomas Aquinas doesn't. Um, so it's a minority voice throughout the history of the church. And I think there's no limit to how significant that theological question is. When I used to be a professor at the university in America, and I used to interview new people to come on the faculty, I would always ask them that question because I was really fascinated to see how they, uh, you know, would if there hadn't been a fall, would Jesus have come? And so, for example, if you, uh, I made a decision in 2008, which I've stuck to ever since, which is I've preached every Easter since then and for the number of Easter's before. And I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer going to preach uh, an Easter sermon that includes words like triumph and victory. Uh, you know, that whole conquest, that whole triumphalism strand in Christianity that we're, to use your word just now, superior, I think is really problematic. And I tried to render the Easter story in that year. Uh, it was a sermon called One Day You Shall Laugh. And it was more about laughter than it was about conquering and triumphing over and tramping down and all the sort of things that the Easter hymns talk about. And and obviously, if if you think that that god's ultimate desire is to be with us that's a very different conception of the christian faith from one in which it's all about the conquest of evil by by basically saying my dad's stronger than your dad and and i think that that is a strand it's there from the very beginning of christianity but i think it's been neglected and you know that's another thing you do in your book very well is to point out things that have been there an awful long time it's not like we're creating something brand new but have been neglected. And that, that to me is the single most significant thing. So I wouldn't say what I'm saying is superior. I, I would say I'm recovering some some strands that have been wrongly neglected. So you, you have um, 10 chapter titles and each chapter is looking at a, a particular argument against faith. I wonder for you personally, which one of those arguments do you find most threatening to your personal faith or have you ever found any of them threatening oh absolutely i think you know those people who say kind things about my preaching and writing i think do so because they like the honesty of the fact that i face the real questions and you know every preacher's pre preaching to themselves in the end of the day at least there's a serious problem if they're not 
So for me, the first one is the big one. It's all a load of nonsense. So I've called that chapter time. I mean, they're all, for those who haven't yeah. seen it. Crutch the for the deluded. That's crutch for the deluded. Follow, follow, in other words, it's all made up. Catalogue of betrayals is about suffering and God lets us down. Fairy tale for the infantile is about the Bible being full of fairy stories, that kind of thing. So there's real problems all the way through. You know, you, you just have to look at the ghastliness that was perpetrated in the name of the church during the imperial colonial period, for example, the way, you know, just how many slaves the bishops owned in the 18th century and ghastly things like that. You know, the, those are all, th but I know, you know, it's not a big surprise in the Christian tradition to say we fail to live up to the ideals that Christianity upholds. Um, that's not really news to me. I mean, it was interesting. I counted up when I finished the book and found that you know, five of the Christians were shortcomings in God and five of them were shortcomings in the church. Well, I'm not saying I'm not bothered by the shortcomings in the church. Of course I am. But they didn't come as a surprise. You know, we know that we're fragile, fallen, fallible, feckless human beings. The shortcomings in God are really problematic. And the big one to me is it's all a load of nonsense. Now, you know, obviously you have to read chapter one to, to find out why, why I think there are very good arguments for the plausibility of Christianity. Uh, but, you know, there's no point in getting upset with the Bible or worrying about suffering if the whole thing's a load of nonsense in the first place. So chapter one is really the biggie for me. Yeah. And and, and so it, it's, I, I mean, it's interesting you say, that, you know, there, there are arguments about the history of the church, but presumably, I mean, you would, by the 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 problems that you have with the church, you're judging the church by Christian standards. I mean, that is a, as often, you know, Richard Dawkins is as well. The, yes, the, no, you, and and and, and uh, uh, you're absolutely right about that, and you're absolutely right about the fact that Richard Dawkins doesn't realise he's judging the church by Christian standards. But the judging of God, I mean, that is that is a kind of a, a bigger issue, and yeah. So uh, I mean, so so. There are two sort of dimensions to that, as I would see it. The, the one that I suppose to the flip side of your question is, which is the one that's on that list that it seems to be a problem for everybody, but isn't a problem for me? I'm going to ask myself that question. Yes, OK, yes, that's a very good that. question. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really chapter two. It's the suffering one. That has never been a problem for me. I know it might sound a terrible thing, a moral thing. So this is say. the problem of, of evil, basically. Yeah. So how because, does a good God, all-powerful, all-good God allow suffering? All of that. Yeah. So... I'd, I'd have a little kind of rant in the middle of that chapter saying, which I hadn't articulated quite as clearly before in my mind, or certainly on paper, which is, okay, so I, you know, I made a deal. I, I, I was up there, you know, pre-embryonic stage in the, in the sparkling of my father's eye and in the imagination of God. And I made a deal, which is, okay, God, I consent to being born on condition that I get a comfortable life, I get a reasonably long life, um, and that those around me aren't horrible to me, and we, we you know, we, we manage to have a good time together. And frankly, God, I think you've let down your side of that bargain. So I'm, you know, I'm jolly upset about it. Well, excuse me, when was this deal? When, when did I arrange to be born? And and and, and and permit myself to be born uh, under certain conditions, which God has failed to meet. It's a load of nonsense. It's it's just. But we have created this uh, this sense of entitlement as human beings. I think it's 
probably within the last 250 years that that's become much more normal. And and God is perceived to have let let let, let us down on the bargain. To me, I didn't actually, I don't know about you, but I didn't choose to be born. This is all gift to me. Uh, I'm not in a position to say, well, this is a pretty poor deal compared to what I was expecting. Uh, I, I, just, I just think that I, I'd like to feel I've got a certain level of humility that says, um, you know, I'm pretty lucky to have a chance at all. I mean, on the subject of suffering and faith, uh, do, do you feel that, um, that in a way people are likelier to turn to God and particularly perhaps to the Christian God in times of suffering, because maybe the great historical genius of the Christian faith has been to provide a framework by which people can understand why suffering might exist in the context of of, the absolute broadness of the cosmos. And that actually the real enemy of Christian faith um, isn't suffering, isn't trouble. It's the opposite. It's comfort. It's ease. And that in a way, the enemy of Christian faith isn't doubt, it's disinterest. I think that's absolutely right. And if you, I mean, that's how the Bible came to be written, as I understand it. You know, if you ask your average congregation, when have you felt close to God? People do not say, you know, my daughter, she got to the semi-finals of the national championships. She was playing centre forward she scored a hat trick and I praised the Lord because of my glorious daughter, how the spirit, nobody says that. You know, they say I was in the hospital ward, it was intensive care. She squeezed my hand as I sang, um, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, or I, I, I need thee every hour or something like that. And I knew, as I said the words of the Lord's Prayer, I knew that it was not just me and her that God was was the third person in the you know that's what people say every single time and that's how the Bible came to be written it came to be written in exile when Israel had lost land and king and temple they'd lost every, or their whole identity all their comfort remember they were chasing the Baals the the other gods you know once they settled into agricultural prosperity once they got to exile they discovered, as I would put it, a god of with uh, that was a much more interesting god than the god of four that they thought was there to do their bidding and give give them comfort and security. But discovering that God was with them and suffering in the fiery furnace story, you know, the three men in the fire discovering that there was a fourth one alongside them, that to me is the number one story of the whole of the Old Testament because when you understand that story, you understand what the exile experience was for Israel. You understand how how and why the Bible came to be written. And the crucial move is that when the early Christians saw Jesus on the cross, they thought this is the ultimate exile. This is God going into exile. Uh, And and, and they saw rather than that as the biggest failure of Christianity, they said this is the very heart of God. And that is the crucial move in Christianity, it seems to be, seems to me. So absolutely, I think think your thesis is absolutely spot on. we, we, we're coming to the end of our half hour. Could I, could I just um, ask you the issue that I've always had? Hmm. Uh, and you, you kind of touch on it in, in your, um, your chapter, One Path Among Many, which is about the relationship of Christianity to other faiths and other traditions. And, you know, if, if Christianity is the way, the truth, the life, then what role, what significance do other traditions have? Could I just slightly put that turn that on its head? Because the problem I have is, isn't it unfair 
if indeed you get to heaven through through Christ. What about the people who lived before Christ? What about the people? I, you know, I'm much more sympathetic to Christianity because I was raised in a Christian context, a Christian family, Christian tradition. What if I'd been raised in, I don't know, uh, Tehran or Riyadh or uh, Baranasi or some place where Christianity wasn't part of the air that one breathes in? Isn't there a kind of fundamental unfairness there that, of which God would be guilty? I think there's a fundamental unfairness if you're in, uh, if you see Jesus as a ladder that we have to climb in order to get to the goodies, then it's very unfair that that ladder only seems to find the earth in certain places, certainly historically. I, I just don't see it that way. It seems to me Jesus is the utter embodiment of God's will to be with us. Uh, and the Holy Spirit makes Christ present in other times and places other than the physical presence of the historical Jesus. If, you, if you've got a very clear sense of the particularity of Jesus that I have, you know, he lived 2,000 years ago from this date to this date and so on. He died on the cross and he rose again. Then you've got to have a very expansive view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I, and I, I think, you know, what you're describing to me is is a is a a notion of Christ that doesn't have a sufficiently rich notion of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can can work through all kinds of traditions all kinds of contexts but but life isn't a game to make sure we get a, on the right side of God before the curtain comes down and we die you know I think if the whole thing is configured like that then yes it's incredibly unfair. But I think that whole way of configuring it is a mistake. So do heaven and hell exist? Uh, he heaven is the utter being with God, with one another, with ourselves and with the new creation. That is God's deepest desire. Absolutely it exists. Well, I mean, well, I, I, I usually wouldn't use the word exist usually because as I develop in, in the first chapter, I have this notion of essence, which is what we would usually call God, which lasts forever and existence which lasts for a limited time which is what we're in right now and and what we find in the resurrection of jesus is god's ultimate purpose is not just to be with us in existence the incarnation of jesus but to draw us to be in essence to be with god the trinity forever so heaven doesn't exist in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't you know last a, a, a certain length of time like our conversation now we are, but ultimately what lasts forever is essence and ultimately we are drawn into being in the company of God, uh, essentially. To me, hell is incoherent philosophically, not for the moral reason that it's really, really unfair, which is the way that modernity has usually dismissed hell, but for the philosophical reason that hell suggests that the sovereign God tolerates some aspects of uh, God's creation that are permanently out of relationship with God. Well, that to me is philosophically incoherent. So it's it's not that, um, oh, God's, you know, God has to be very, very strict with the bad ones if God's going to affirm the good ones because there's a universal moral law or something. It's a, that's, that's the conversation that usually 
dismisses Hell as being just monstrously unfair. I mean, there's a point in that because, you know, for Hitler, 50 billion years in Hell would seem a reasonable punishment, but that's not eternity. That's not a scratch on eternity. So there's a point to the moral argument, but to me, it's really a philosophical thing that that says that God's God's will to be in relationship with us, with us will not ever be thwarted, cannot finally be thwarted. So, so the devil might be saved. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm cheery about talking about the devil because there's always the dangerous the danger of making the devil more interesting than God. You know, that's that that's the you know, hence all the movies. Um, but the devil, to me, is the personification of a desire eternally to be out of relationship with God. Well, that uh, that desire, if it exists in anyone or ever has. Uh, will not prevail. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.